Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, it's always the second time. It's great to see you here today. If, if we haven't met, my name's Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you join us for the first time, first time in a long time, first time at church in a long time, we're just so glad that you decided to visit today. And we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, that you fit right in and make yourself at home here today at the Vista. One brief thing to draw your attention to before we jump in proper, and that is that our student ministry hosted their annual The Way weekend this weekend. If you're unfamiliar with The Way, uh, we had over 200 students gather this weekend and host homes to build friendships, community, learn about Jesus, experience Jesus together, and it's just a really, really amazing thing. Um, huge shout out to Chris and Emma, our two fantastic student pastors, and then all the leaders, yeah, and host homes who opened up their houses this weekend, you know, like 30 middle school boys. It'll take them weeks to get the smell of Takis out of the living room from having 30 (laughs) middle school boys. But it's a really cool thing and a reminder that for all the fretting we do sometimes about how the next generation, you know, the faith will end with the next generation. Uh, God can be faithful to raise up the next generation, just like God has always been faithful to raise up the next generation. And we're so grateful for our student ministry. Um, Today, we're in the fifth week of our series called Chasing the Wind, a series where we're walking through this Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. It was written by either King Solomon or a later admirer of King Solomon, and it's a book of fairly straightforward but also sneakily challenging wisdom about what it looks like to make your peace with life. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? Just make your peace with life. Accept its boundaries and its parameters, and life will go well for you. And It does sound so simple, but you and I both know that is just not due in large part to our rather hilarious self-destructive tendency to live against the grain of reality, right? should be the family crest for a lot of you. This is why a lot of you live your lives. Right? And when you make a habit of living against the grain of reality, what happens? What happens when you go against the grain? You get splinters. This is what happens when you go against the grain. Any of you who have kids or even around kids, you know that a large part of your job as a parent is to help your kid understand how the grain of reality runs so that your kids don't go through their life getting unnecessary splinters. My boys are six and eight at this point, and by my unofficial calculations, they would have killed themselves approximately 10,000 times at this point if I had not been around to say, like, hey, stop playing catch with a machete. Don't, don't floss with a chainsaw. Don't pile drive your brother on the concrete when your mom's around. you got to wait till mom's not here to do that stuff. And in a sense, this is what Solomon is doing in Ecclesiastes. He's trying to help us make our peace with life. And it's also why Ecclesiastes can feel very offensive to modern people. I know a lot of stuff we've talked about in the series, it doesn't easily sit well with a lot of us, due in large to the fact that we have told ourselves the story about how we're these limitless selves living in a limitless universe and all things are possible with God and we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. But in point of fact, um, no. You're not a limitless self living in a limitless universe. And the fact that all things are possible with God does not mean that God wants to make it possible for you to do all things. Actually, the list of things that God has decided he does not want you to be able to do, it's actually very long. Have you ever thought about it? You, You can't fly, can't breathe underwater, can't make soccer interesting, right? You just can't do it. I mean, <laughs> I've never seen anybody more proud of a non-win in my entire life. You got to be careful arguing with the soccer fans, though. They will flop on you quick. And they're like, oh, hard to say. You can't say that about soccer. Okay. 
Right? And so wisdom is discerning which parts of reality are wrong and they need to be rebelled against. Right? We call that injustice. And which parts of reality just need to be accepted. Stop fighting against it. Just accept it. And so we'll pick up where we left off last week. See what Solomon has to say in regards to the wisdom of work and wealth. Right, so if you have your Bibles, grab them. We'll be in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 through 8. Then we'll jump ahead to chapter 5, verses 10 through 20. All kind of a single strain of thought there in Solomon's thinking. So pick up here in verse 4. <clears throat> he says, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Now this too is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. But one handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all of his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring? And depriving myself of pleasure, this too is vanity, and it's a grievous task. We'll jump ahead to chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them just increase too. Amen, says every parent. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man doesn't allow him to sleep. Now, there is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner. To whose hurt? To his hurt. Now, when those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he came naked from his mother's womb, so he shall return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die, namely naked and broke. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. So here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. So Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 8, then 5, 10 through 20. So Solomon starts out here with some thoughts on laziness, rest, and labor. He talks about how much of human activity is motivated by this very childish form of rivalry, wherein, as Dave said a few weeks ago, uh, we buy things that we don't need with money that we don't have to impress people that we really don't even like, truth be told. All right? um, but lest we imagine that the solution to this dilemma is to just not work, Solomon has some very strong words for us about laziness. Right? This is verse 5. He says, The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh, which is a very vivid way to say that if you don't work, then you don't eat, unless you want to eat your own flesh, okay? That's what Solomon is saying here. And this can get complicated, and we need to remember uh, how and when to make wise and compassionate exceptions, but it's very important to understand that work is not a result of the fall. It's not like Adam was just, you know, 
messing around all day, and then he messed up, and God's like, well, I got to give this guy some chores. You know, clearly he can't be left with idle hands. No, you remember uh, Genesis 12, uh, uh, 2 verse 15. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. All right, so God makes Adam, and the first thing that God does with Adam is what? He gives him a job. God saw that it was good for Adam to have good work to do. And work has become a complicated thing in the modern world for all sorts of reasons. For one, a lot of modern work is soul-crushing, dehumanizing work that probably doesn't deserve to be done. And so we are well within our rights and our calling as God's good creatures to refuse doing work that doesn't deserve to be done. Work like, like telemarketing, okay? That's work that probably doesn't deserve to be done by anybody. But then sometimes our aversion to work is not so noble. And a lot of us seem to have come to believe that any work that we do not find completely and utterly and always satisfying is work that we shouldn't have to do. Y'all don't know how many times over the years someone will be sitting in my office in existential angst and anxiety because they don't love their job. And they'll tell me all about it, all about it. And then at some point in this conversation, they'll say to me, Austin, I just, I just wish that I could find my dream job, just like you have found your dream job. And I'll always think to myself, you think this is my dream job? You think me sitting here listening to you complain about not having your dream job is my dream job? You think that's what I went to seminary for, to listen to people complain? about how they can't find their dream job? Mm -mm, that's not why I went. So let's just say it all at once and crush everybody's dreams all together, okay? Nobody is in their dream job because every job has things that suck. Y'all remember Anthony Bourdain? World famous chef and world traveler. His whole job was literally to travel the world and eat delicious food. And the man killed himself in a luxurious French hotel room on a stomach of luxurious French cuisine. And so instead of daydreaming about the dream job that you do not have, except that you will never get your dream job because it doesn't exist, and then channel all that daydreaming towards finding a job that provides for you and yours and is good enough work for you on the whole to sort of kind of enjoy it, okay? That's what Solomon would say. Right? And uh, then after taking issue here with the foolishness of laziness, Solomon then takes issue with the foolishness of hyper-industriousness. Perhaps uh, the only thing that's, that's maybe more tragic than someone who refuses to work is someone who is incapable of resting. Here's how Solomon puts it in verse, five, uh, verse 6. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. It's like the, the parable of the, the businessman and the fisherman. Have you heard this apocryphal modern parable? There's this very successful New York City businessman. He goes down on vacation in Mexico, strikes up a conversation with a local fisherman. Ask the fisherman what he does with his time. And the fisherman says, why? I wake up in the morning, I fish a little bit, then I come back to shore, I drink wine in the sun with my friends, and I make music all day. That's what I do. And the businessman is very appalled at the fisherman's work ethic. It's time management. So he offers him some unsolicited advice. He says, hey, here's what you should do. You just need to work harder and more. Work longer hours. Then you invest those proceeds back in a bigger fleet of ships. Get other people to do the fishing for you. You could make millions. You could retire early. The fisherman says, you're taking notes. This is, this is great stuff, man. But I do have a question. What, what would I do after I had worked really hard and then retired? And the businessman says, well, then you'd be free to 
drink wine in the sun and make music with your friends all day, I guess. You get it? No, it'll, it'll end on you. Think about it. And so what Solomon is criticizing here is a sort of pathological obsession with productivity, wherein we keep telling ourselves this obviously false but tough to not believe lie, that if we can just produce a little more wealth, if we can just mark a few more things off the to-do list, if we can just produce a little bit more, then everything will be awesome and we can finally enjoy our lives. As he puts it in uh, chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, he's like, there's this awful evil. You, you came into the world with nothing. You're going to end the world with nothing. It doesn't matter how much you have. You're just going to leave it to some knucklehead kid who's probably going to blow it anyways. And so what good does it do to work this hard? Solomon is like, why are some of you working so hard? And I know for a lot of us achievers, this is a very offensive question. It bothers me. I'd rather you question anything besides my work ethic, right? That's the one thing you can't touch. One of my favorite books uh, of the past year was written by a guy named Arthur Brooks. And the book is called From Strength to Strength. It's a book about aging. It's a book about aging. And the basic premise of the book is that the things that make you really good at life in the first half of life make you really bad at life in the second half of life. Because in order to be good at the first half of life, you, you have to be a very driven, uh, achievement-oriented, successful person. And so your life begins to revolve around achievement and success, and that means your identity becomes very wrapped up in achievement and success. Now, this is going to be hard for some of us to hear, but I, I'm very confident it's true. Nobody gets to be an achiever forever. Because our productivity inevitably slows down as we age. It's biology. It's science. And this leaves us achievers in a really difficult spot. Because our identity is now all wrapped up in this productivity that we are not capable of anymore. Can't keep up forever. We typically have very few, if any, close friends because we spent years sacrificing our friendships at the altar of our achievements. We typically have very fractured relationships with our families because we sacrificed our families at the altar of our jobs. And we did it because why? What's the lie we told ourselves? We were doing it for them. This them that wants nothing to do with you now because you wanted nothing to do with them for decades. Brooks tells one particularly vivid story about talking to this lady who was really successful and wealthy, worked on Wall Street, and <clears throat> she was telling him about just how awful her, her, her life was. She was always exhausted. Her marriage was a wreck. Her relationship with her kids was hollow. She drank too much. She always had anxiety. She was always exhausted. And so when she finished, Brooks asked her why she doesn't just do some of the pretty obvious things that she could do to remediate her situation. And her answer was almost uncomfortably honest. She said, I guess I would prefer to be special rather than happy. You could switch out successful for something else, but you get it. And that's a lot of us. We would rather be successful. We would rather be special than we would be happy. And so in a callback of sorts to our and series, what Solomon is doing here is riffing on the wisdom of finding a balance between laziness and pathological productivity because this sort of refusing to like engage and participate in society and provide for you and yours laziness it's not just a bad work ethic y'all it is sinful that's what it is paul puts it this way first timothy 5 verse 8 he says if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household then he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever but did you know this verse was in the bible Paul says, listen, I, I don't care if you pray a hundred times a day, you go on a mission trip every week, you think you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you think you are a prophet. If you don't provide for you and yours, then brother, you don't know Jesus. 
That's what Paul says. Then on the flip side of that, pathological productivity is just as misguided because it's this very socially acceptable cover for being selfish and sinful. To use a metaphor here, it's kind of like health and working out, okay? Because just eating crap all day, every day, and never working out, never going on a walk, never doing any of that stuff, y'all. It's not just like bad for your body. It is sinful. It is not taking care of this temple that God has given you. But on the flip side, man, doing like three a days, every day, and only eating kale and protein smoothies? Well, it's a little bit psychotic, isn't it? I think some of you are under the impression that there's going to be like a body fat test at the pearly gates, you know, that you're going to come up to Peter. He's going to be like, hold on. I'm going to need you to spin in a circle, whip your arms around. No, you know, you're going to have to go to the other place, shed a few LBs in the sauna. Then maybe you can get in through them gates, you know. Some of y'all need to live a little bit. Here's some health and life advice I came across on Twitter that I think Solomon would approve of. This lady said, my current body type is like, you can sort of tell I work out, but you can also tell that I don't say no when someone offers me a cookie. Okay, this is, this is what we had to aim for in our lives. Don't always take the cookie, but don't never take the cookie. Take the cookie in moderation. Uh, the Apostle Paul offers his own spin on the importance of finding balance and contentment in life when it comes to work and wealth. This is 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. He says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Key concept here is, of course, contentment, which is very closely related to the concept of gratitude, which we talked about a few months ago. And do you remember what we said about it? That it's, it's not happy people who are grateful, but it is grateful people who are happy. It's not that if you get happy, then you become grateful. No, it's you get grateful, and then you become happy. So instead of living with the delusion that happiness is just over the horizon, you know, of the next accomplishment, the next job, the next raise, the next house, the next stage of life, the next personal breakthrough, the next social breakthrough, the next election. If we can just get this election right, then it'll all be okay. How many times have you heard that in your lifetime? Every single election. I've heard it every election. It's the most important election. Instead of doing that, accept that happiness happens now when we are grateful and content with what we have now. Now, this does not mean that we should not work for improvement, that we should not fight for justice and do all those things. We should, but it means that we should do so with the understanding that, in Paul's words, we brought nothing into this world, and we will take nothing out of this world. And so if we have food and covering, does everybody in here have food and covering? If you don't, find one of our pastors after the service, and we'll make sure that you do, because you should have that. But I bet basically everybody does. And Paul says, if you have food and covering, you should be content. And if you're content, you will be happy. And this brings us to one final, simple, and very challenging piece of wisdom here at the end of our text. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. He says, so here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat to drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. So you, you've probably noticed, if you've been paying any attention, this pattern in Ecclesiastes, <clears throat> where Solomon will take a topic, work, wealth, 
wisdom, politics, pleasure, whatever it is. He will then work it over in this very unsentimental analysis. He will come to the conclusion that it, whatever it is, is hevel. That's this word that's basically the theme of Ecclesiastes. Variously could mean like vanity, fleeting, or meaningless. And then after he has come to this very depressing conclusion about basically everything being hevel, he will decide that the only appropriate thing that we should do in response is something like this. He always says some version of this. You ought to do good work and then eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Because you're not going to be here for very long. So you might as well enjoy it a little bit. We saw it in chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. There is nothing better for a man than to eat, drink, and tell himself that his labor is good. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It's the gift of God. We saw it at the end of chapter 3 last week. And I know this sounds almost like irresponsibly hedonistic to a lot of us. You know, it's so irresponsible because we've been indoctrinated with this very well-intentioned but dumb idea that we're supposed to we're supposed to change the world and fix everything that's broken, and we should never settle for less than perfection ever. And so it can be very offensive to hear Solomon say, "Hey, you, you know what? A lot of you, you know what your problem is. You need to lower your expectations a little bit." That's your problem. That's what's wrong with you. Your expectations are too high. <gasps> lower my expectations? Is that what, lower my, is that what you were saying? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because you say, aim for the moon. And even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. To which I say, aim for the moon and you will die of a skull fracture. That's what I think. <laughs> That's what I see. Why don't you aim for the moon? Let me know how it goes, okay? I'll be there to film. And if you don't believe me, I'll give you a very simple example. Marriage. Do I need to explain? Okay, so. Can't think of a better analogy for a skull fracture. Um, boy, there are all sorts of reasons why marriage is, is difficult. And divorce is sadly prevalent in the modern world. There are a lot of reasons for it. But one of the main reasons that we never, ever talk about is this ridiculous idea that we all walk around with. That we should never settle in marriage. Should never settle in your marriage. Should never settle anything in your marriage. Right? It's wrong to settle in marriage. Now, the kernel of truth, and it's a very small kernel of truth, in this idea is that you should be thoughtful about who you marry. And you should marry a good person who's good for you, and then you should work to have a good marriage. Okay? That is true. But that said, let's make this really, really clear. If you refuse to settle in marriage then you are not going to be married. Because to be married is to settle on committing yourself to an imperfect person. That's what marriage is. Now, to be more specific, some of us are living in this fantasy world. We expect our spouses to be this unlimited source of both excitement and stability. We want them to whisk us away to Vegas on a whim on a Saturday night. And then get the kids up early for church on Sunday morning? Is it too much to ask? I just want it all. Is it too much to ask? Yes, it is too much to ask, and you can't have it all, and I hate to break it to you, but if you refuse to settle in marriage, then you are still settling. You are settling for having a miserable, dysfunctional, and probably destined to die 
marriage. Can't tell you the number of times someone will be in my office and my, my marriage is just not perfect. My spouse doesn't get it. They don't want to make it perfect. And I think to myself, man, don't take this the wrong way, but being married to you must suck. <laughs> if, you want a, if you want a perfect marriage, then, man, you should have got with JC. I'm told he's not on the market, though, so you need to make your peace with this. My wife and I, we go to marriage counseling. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, being a pastor and all. It's, it's mainly her fault, but we do go to marriage counseling. <laughs> I'm I'm great. Um, and basically, yeah, you go to marriage counseling. If you've been, you throw it all against the wall, man. It all comes out. And then at the end of it, our therapist, bless her heart, she'll listen to it all. And she'll go, you know, y'all, you're both doing great. You're doing great. And you should just lower your expectations a little bit. And I'm like, I'm going to write that one down. I'm going to give it to my wife next to you. Just don't have high expectations, baby. You're going to be disappointed. This brings us to one last thing Solomon says in verse 20. He says, for they will scarcely brood over the days of their lives because God keeps them occupied with the gladness of their hearts. Now, similar to last week, this is not going to go over very well with the catastrophizers and Enneagram 4s in our midst. A lot of overlap on that Venn diagram, by the way. Um, But what Solomon is saying here is, look, it's not healthy or productive for you to sit around and brood, I like that word, brood over the days of your life. Sitting around frustrated, brooding, depressed about how imperfect the world is, about how imperfect your life is, it does not make the world or your life better. It just makes you miserable and the world worse. Now, notice, Solomon is not saying that life cannot be sad and heavy. Y'all, Solomon is the most emo guy to ever write a book of the Bible, right? He starts off his whole book going, "Ah, vanity of vanities, everything's vanity, nothing's worth anything. I hope you keep reading the book, okay? This is not an optimistic man. But rather what Solomon is saying, instead of denying that the world is heavy, he is saying that the heaviness of the world, it's not yours to shoulder. Now this is a statement ratified by Jesus in Matthew 11. You remember when Jesus said what? That his yoke was easy and his burden is light. And so if Jesus said that his burden was light and what you're carrying around is heavy, do I need to connect those dots for you? It means you're carrying something that Jesus has not asked you to carry. And then Solomon wraps it up by saying that God redirects our hearts away from brooding by occupying our hearts with gladness. Okay, it's like if you've got a kid, you're just around a kid, and they're really sad about something insignificant. You know, they got like a little scrape on their knee, and instead of indulging their drama, what do you do? You redirect them. Now, if your little boy's he scraped his knee and he's almost bleeding, and he's just he's very traumatic about it. You don't get down on his level, do you? You don't go, oh my gosh, man, that looks really painful. That looks like it really hurts. Can you imagine how bad it's gonna hurt when you die? <laughs> Is that what you do to your kid? But that's what some of you do to yourselves. You're going to die? No. Rather, what do you do with a kid? You redirect. You give them a sucker. You tickle them. right? You wrestle with them. If it's a little boy, I'll be fine. Now, notice, you don't do this because you don't take their pain seriously. No, no, no. You do it because you take their joy more seriously than you take their pain. And you might ask, how dare we do that? Isn't that irresponsible to take pain more seriously than joy? Well, I'll tell you, how dare we take joy more seriously than pain? We dare take joy so seriously because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why. If you don't get that, then you don't understand the good news of the resurrection, and that's fine. But that's why we dare take joy so seriously. It's like G.K. Chesterton once said, angels can fly because they take themselves so lightly. (laughs) I think a lot of us could do 
for taking ourselves and even our situation, as dire as it is, a little bit lighter. All that to say, Solomon's challenge is that we accept reality. Quit fighting reality. You're going to lose. Reality always wins. Undefeated. Accept reality for the fallen, but wonderful gift that it is. Be active, but not frantic. And take God more seriously than you take yourself. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. As always, we we confess that we don't deserve to be here. We are here because a good God has decided to host us in his imperfect but good world. And we're, we're grateful for that. God, we come before you today, old friends, new friends, and there's a lot we bring to the table. Some of us are struggling with laziness. We think we should not have to do work that we do not love all the time, and that's not true. God, that's a form of sin. You've called us to provide for us and ours because there's stuff that's more important than our comfort. It's important to contribute, to produce. God, some of us struggle with the other end of the spectrum, pathological productivity, and we always tell ourselves that it's for a good cause, but it's never for a good cause when it's pathological. We pray that you would remind us that we brought nothing into this world. We will take nothing out of this world. And so if we have food and covering, we should be content. And then, God, finally, we just pray for all of us who tend to take ourselves and our situation maybe a little bit more seriously than we should. Not that our situation is not serious, but because a very seriously good God can be trusted with it. And so we pray that anything we carry that is incredibly heavy, that we would realize that it is not ours to carry. You'll carry it. You'll get under that load with us so that the weight of the world does not rest upon our shoulders. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.